And then in honor of God's word, may you please all stand and join me for the reading from Matthew. Matthew 5, verses 4, 8, and 27 through 30. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the uh, lead pastor down at Trinity uh, Palace, but it's good, it's good to get up here once a month. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you for recording this sermon of Jesus that he gave early in his ministry to his disciples, that they might know what the kingdom looked like, what the expectations of them were, and what life was about. Father, we pray now that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and our hearts to experience the grace that you give us. In Christ's name, amen. So I thought I would start off this morning by asking a question. What are you willing to sacrifice to get what you want? What are you willing to sacrifice to get what you want? So perhaps what you want is some weight loss. What are you willing to sacrifice to have that weight loss? About 13, 14 years ago, I weighed 230 pounds, believe it or not. And the sacrifice that I had to go through was not eating two giant slices of stuffed crust pizza from my favorite pizza place in Marion, Iowa. That was really difficult. It was, it was a great sacrifice because I loved it. And so I would take the single piece of pizza and I would cut it into two pieces. So I felt like I was eating two, even though I was really just, you know, eating one. But it was a sacrifice. There were certain things that I had to give up to get what I wanted. Maybe you've trained for like a half marathon or a marathon or a triathlon and there are things that you have to sacrifice. Fortunately, it also kind of relates to food, doesn't it? You can't eat as many donuts and things as you want when you're, when you're training. You have to give up watching TV shows to go running and that's, that's sacrifice. Maybe you're studying for exams and you want, you want a good grade and so you have to sacrifice going out with your friends or, you know, maybe watching another TV show or, you know, ice streaming, you know, streaming whatever you want to watch because that's what it's going to cost you to get that grade. So what I don't think happens is I don't think that we are people that are unwilling to sacrifice to get what we want. I think we're very willing to sacrifice to get what we want. I think the difficulty for us, if you're like me, is 
we're not so eager to sacrifice for righteousness' sake. That we're not as interested, we're not as eager to sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. And that's what this whole sermon is about, the blessing of righteousness. That what we're called to do is to sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. And as we kind of move through this sermon, we see Jesus unpacking this through the Beatitudes and then giving them, you know, maybe an illustration or an application that kind of helps to drive this point home. But let me ask you this question. Why don't we sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness? And I wonder if the reason that we don't sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness is that we don't value righteousness enough. Because if we did, we would be willing to sacrifice for it. Because we would say, oh, righteousness, that's a wonderful thing. I should pursue that. I'm willing to sacrifice in order to have righteousness, in order to pursue righteousness. And so this morning, this is what we want to talk about. How do we find ourselves in a place where we understand the blessing of righteousness so much that we're willing to sacrifice for it? And I think one of the places where this starts is it starts, pursuing righteousness starts with mourning over sin. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So as you're listening to this, I want you to try to imagine for a moment that you're one of the disciples. And so while it's very likely that there was a large crowd listening to Jesus, what we know from the introduction to Matthew chapter 5 is that his intended audience is the disciples, even though other people are hearing this. So what we have to understand and conclude is that this isn't a sermon about how to get into the kingdom. If you do these things and you'll, you'll be let in. This is a sermon to people who are already, have already stepped in. They're already following. And so now Jesus is unpacking what this life looks like. And so he says to them kind of the second thing that must not have made a lot of sense to them. Because he started off, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really, that's where you want to start your sermon about the kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit? And then he goes to, blessed are those who mourn. And as some of them were probably thinking to themselves, this sounds like an unusual place to start explaining the people in the kingdom and the blessings that they get. It was also had to be very comforting to hear that. If you were a person who was mourning, to know that there was blessing for you in the kingdom. And so the pursuit of righteousness starts with mourning over sin. And there's lots to mourn over, isn't there? Can mourn over our own sin. Can mourn over the sin of others. We can mourn over the impact of sin in our lives. We can mourn over the impact of our sin in the lives of other people. And when you, we think about that, we think about the massive amount of things that we really have to mourn over. Yesterday, when I got back from the elder retreat, I was going through CNN, and I saw 
the most upsetting news story I think I've seen in a long time. I saw a news story about some police that were called to this house. And they couldn't get into the house, and so they got a ladder, and they put the ladder up against the fence in the backyard. And what they saw were two children under the age of four chained up like dogs. One of the children had his pants down around his ankles, and the other child was, you know, passed out lying on the ground. And even in trying to tell it to you, I'm feeling this emotion of mourning because the sickening and disgusting aspect of that is overwhelming to me. And what they found inside the house was even more children. I mourn over that. I mourn over the fact that when I drive around Palis, you know, we have this intersection at 143rd and Harlem, where there's three or four folks, one of them's his name is Dan, and Dan and I have coffee occasionally. And Dan works, he usually works the 143rd approach to Harlem. And he shuffles along with this, you know, with his little sign that says homeless, you know, please help. And I know what you're thinking. A lot of those people are working a scam. And they, some of them are, they're just panhandling. And Dan lives behind a bank. You know, they, you ever seen the, uh, you know, where they put the dumpsters and they have a little fence around them, brick fence and a, and a gate. So what happens is, you know, when it gets nighttime, Dan jumps that and then he sleeps back there. And I mourn over that. Those are things that are easy to mourn about because they're easy to see kind of the injustice that's happening. But what other kind of things might we mourn about? I wonder if we mourn about the fact that intellectual property is being stolen. Listen to you snicker. That doesn't even make sense. That's like trying to explain a credit default swap. Why would I mourn over intellectual property being stolen? That's an abstract thing that somebody develops something and then patents it and then somebody else steals it and tries to make money off of that. You may know that we have two people in this congregation who make their living off defending companies and saying this is the economic damage that has been done by the fact that their intellectual property has been stolen. And, and they're trying to, to write justice, and that's a good thing. But you all snickered at that. It didn't make sense. Let me see if I can give you a maybe more applicable thing that has to do with intellectual property. How many people have seen the new Star Wars movie? Why isn't every hand up? <laughs> this concerns me. I'm mourning over this right now. How many people like music on iTunes? Yeah, that's great, isn't it? How many people love paying for music on iTunes? You, you snickered again. Did you know that there are websites that you can go to that don't end in .com or .net that you can download those albums for free without paying? Did you know this? They have programs called like BitTorrent that you can suck down these albums from various websites and various different countries and not have to pay. 
Aren't you laughing? Because God gave somebody a gift, the gift of creating music, the gift of recording music, the gift of managing records. And we decided that we wanted that music so bad that we didn't want to pay for it, because why would we want to do that? So we'll just go to an illegal website and download some illegal music for free so that we can have our own pleasure. And we don't mourn about it at all. We don't mourn about it because we don't care that the artist isn't getting the money that they're supposed to have because God gave them the gift of producing music. We don't mourn about the fact that record companies are going to have to lay off people because you decided that you wanted to steal music or movies. We don't mourn over that because we're busy pursuing our love of having what we want and not busy pursuing righteousness. But we should be mourning over that. That's what we're called to mourn for. But this is what Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And I think back about the children in the backyard and Dan the homeless man and I think, I mourn over that. How, how will not only I be comforted, but how will they be comforted? One of the things that we could say as well, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to return again and that we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth and there'll be no more mourning anymore. And we can push it all off into the future, but that doesn't seem like the kind of comfort that I'm looking for. I mean, it is kind of comforting, isn't it, to, to know that in the future there's going to be comfort, but I want some comfort right now. I want some comfort right now, and maybe the key to understanding how this comfort comes is to understand how much of, as we've talked before, Isaiah 61 stands behind this. So listen to Isaiah 61, which you may have been hearing, and listen for words like mourning and righteousness and see if there's maybe a connection. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. Well, now that sounds familiar. This is kind of ripped right from a sermon that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 4 early on where he's given this scroll and he reads it and he says this is fulfilled in your hearing of it that Jesus says this is what I have come to do and that's not all that Isaiah 61 says to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. It goes on in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. You see what's happening now? The person who's writing this is moving to, to joy. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, 
And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise. I propose to you that this comfort comes from the forgiveness that comes from Christ. As we mourn over our sin, part of the comfort that we receive is, is the forgiveness that Christ gives us. This is the gospel that we talk about so much, that we believe in, that our faith is built on. This comfort also comes from belonging to a people. A people that we're supposed to weep with, to comfort, to come alongside. And from the hope of righteousness. That this comfort comes from having a hope in righteousness. And this is where this passage turns us. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I'm a big believer that these first three beatitudes kind of have to flow through. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Because sin doesn't satisfy. See, if we mourn over our sin and are really, truly saddened by it, then we want something else. Sin doesn't satisfy, but, but righteousness does. And what Jesus uses here in this very difficult to understand application is he gives them an invitation to stop pursuing sin. To sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. That if we were to look at our sin, actually contemplate it, and to contemplate the impact of it on our lives and the lives of others, we would be willing to sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. Because we see that righteousness is far better. That it's far better to pursue righteousness than it is to pursue sin. And so here's what he gives them. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Where would they have heard that before? Certainly they heard that in the Ten Commandments. But now Jesus takes it and kind of pushes it even further. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Okay, so, raise your hand if you think that this passage is very difficult to understand. Raise your right hand. Okay. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's not impossible. If we participate with what Jesus is doing. We all, Jeff talked last week about hyperbole, right? So we all understand what hyperbole is. If I say it's raining cats and dogs outside, I don't mean it's actually raining cats and dogs outside. If I said I ran so hard in that marathon, I'm at the point of death, it doesn't actually mean that. But it also doesn't mean that we can take this and kind of say, well, he's just, you know, overstating it. No, Jesus is really driving at something. 
And it's something that's nearly impossible. See, what the Pharisees did is the Pharisees intensified the law by making more of them. By taking the boundary markers and saying, this is what God said righteousness looks like. And the Pharisees said, well, in order to protect that, we should put more layers on it. Here's how far you can walk on Sunday. All these extra rules. And Jesus says, I came to, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Not all that additional stuff that they put on, but the stuff that my father gave. But Jesus isn't as interested in behavior. He's not uninterested in it. But where the Pharisees were intensifying behavior, Jesus is intensifying the heart. This is where he's going. He says, if you even look upon a woman in order to lust after her. So here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that Jesus is saying, if you look at a woman and you say, wow, she is attractive. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because we've all done that. Jesus creates beautiful people. And we look at them and say, that is a beautiful person. That's okay. But when we continue to stare with the intent of lusting, that's what Jesus is going after right here. He is intensifying the heart. He's saying, I want you to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. And he's not asking them to cut off their hands or cut out their eyes. It's not as if there's a really poorly written book, you know, uh, Easy Steps to Obedience by Jesus. You open it up and be like, whoa, what's in here? That's, that's not what's happening. But what Jesus is asking them to do is to be willing to sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. And let's be honest, it's very difficult to do this, is it not? We live in a culture now that is based on eroticism. There is eroticism everywhere we go. It's in the newsstands, it's on TV, it's in the movies. It's everywhere. We live in a society that's based on eroticism. So I was talking to somebody before the service and I said, oh, have we met? The person said, oh yeah, I know you and, and I know about your love for iPhones. So let's talk about the iPhone or whatever smartphone you have. Parents, how many of you are terrified to death of your children and what they can do with their phone? Yeah, it's terrifying, isn't it? See, when, when I was in school, when I was a junior high and high school, if somebody in my grade wanted to look at pornography, what you had to do is you had to walk to the local, you know, gas station and be embarrassed by standing there in front of the guy who maybe knew your parents, maybe somebody you knew was going to come in and buy gas while you were in there, and you had to go to the section where they had all the magazines kind of foil wrapped. And it took some, took some effort. Not anymore. Just 
pop on the phone, download whatever you want. It's terrifying, isn't it? There's, there's apps out there that can help us. We were talking about this at the elder retreat. You know, how can we, how can we help you all in this very difficult raising of children in this culture of eroticism? And part of it is stuff that we can do, but part of it is stuff that comes in our hearts. That when we hop on our phones, we understand the damage, the lasting damage that is done by viewing the things that we're viewing. That it's destroying our masculinity, that it's destroying our femininity, that it's destroying our concept of what people's dignity is. Do we mourn over that? Do we mourn over the person whose picture that, that is there on the screen and how it is that they came to a place in their life that made them think, I should be on the other side of the phone for somebody. Do we mourn over that? Because it's what Jesus is calling us to do. To be willing to sacrifice that kind of vain and fleeting pleasure to understand the damage that is being done and to sacrifice in order to pursue righteousness. And there's, this is one of the things that is very true. Maybe you've heard it said, well, she had it coming. Did you see the way she was dressed? This verse will stop that cold. If you look at a woman with the intent of lusting, you've already committed adultery. But this isn't just, you know, a verse for, for men. It's a verse for women as well. Because women, you struggle with this too, don't you? Guys aren't the only ones who are struggling with lust. Women are doing it as well. I've seen the statistics. Jesus is calling us to a deeper sense of righteousness and pursuing righteousness. And, and believe me, when Jesus is making an illustration about lusting after a woman and connects it with the eye and the right hand, people were squirming because they knew what he was talking about, as I suspect you do. But when we move from mourning to our sin and we understand the depth and gravity of it, and the gospel creates in us this desire to pursue righteousness, something amazing happens. That we become people who are pure in heart. That we no longer have two motivations about the, what we do. We have one motivation. So to be pure in heart means to have one motivation in your heart. To be pure in heart means that we have one motivation, and that is that we are pursuing righteousness. That we're kind of like Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, one of the things I love about Chick-fil-A is they always have that person out there. So whenever I'm at the mall or wherever, and they have a Chick-fil-A in a mall, I always kind of walk by to see if they have the person out there. You know the person I'm talking about, right? The person that's offering foretastes of yumminess with a little chicken. Like, I would love a chicken nugget. 
And the reason they want to give you that chicken nugget is they want you to develop a taste. Ooh, not only would I like that chicken nugget, I'd like a whole sandwich because it's so good. And they know that the sending that person out there to give you a foretaste is something that we want. I read recently about how that's kind of like these pink spoons. You see, you know where this pink spoon is from? Where is it from? Baskin Robbins. And what do we use the pink spoons for? It's a little, it's a sample. What if in mourning over our sin, and in pursuing and hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we became people who were pure in heart, who in everything they were doing were pursuing righteousness, who saw themselves as pink spoons in the workplace and in the school, offering foretastes of the kingdom. Here's what it's like to be in the kingdom. That as you're making a hiring decision over which person to hire to sit outside of your office and be your secretary or assistant or co-worker, that what you're thinking about is, I want to offer you a foretaste of the kingdom in the way that I treat you. And that's my primary and only motivation. It's not so that I can look at you more during the day. Because you're kind of hot. So I'd like it if I hired you instead of that other person. That's not offering a foretaste of the kingdom. What would it be like if we saw ourselves as pink spoons offering foretastes of the kingdom? I want to be a pink spoon. I do. I'm conflicted just like you are. So what Jesus is calling us to do is to mourn over our sin, to receive the comfort that comes from the gospel, to hunger and thirst for righteousness that transforms us into people who are pure in heart. What would the city be like? What would the workplace, our schools, the marketplace be like if it was filled with Christians who were pure in heart, offering foretastes of the kingdom? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful word of hope, of comfort, for those who mourn. And Father, create in us pure hearts. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.